KYW News Radio and Odyssey present a Flashpoint special. I'm listening because talk has the power to save lives. Hi there, I'm KYW's Denise Nakano, and this is a special one hour edition of Flashpoint. I'm listening is Odyssey's commitment to raising awareness about mental health and suicide prevention during Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. There is one death by suicide in the U.S. every 11 minutes. That's five people by the conclusion of this hour-long program. But there's something we can do to put a stop to it, something that could save a life. And it starts by saying it's okay and necessary to talk about suicide. Talk has the power to save lives. I had a good friend who died by suicide 10 years ago. He was a loving husband, father, and son, and his death was heartbreaking and left a giant hole in my heart and in every heart who knew him. And that's why this is so important to me. Together, we can change the conversation about mental health. So let's get that conversation going, eliminate the stigma, and whether you've struggled or have lost a loved one, know you are not alone. With me is Mary Ann Murtha, the Greater Philadelphia Area Director of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We also had David Huber, who will share his lived experience and how he's now raising awareness about suicide prevention through AFSP. And Mary E. May, a therapist and owner of Butterfly Love, LLC. Thank you, Mary Ann, David, and Mary for being here. Thanks for having me. Marianne, how do we make it okay to have these conversations about mental health? We talk about having a real conversation. When you see somebody that is struggling, their talk has changed. They talk about ending their lives or they say they have no reason to live. Have they increased their use of alcohol or drugs? Or conversely, someone that's real high energy starts to become isolated. These are all signs that someone is struggling. And just reach out and having a, like I said, a real conversation. Are you okay? How are you feeling? I've noticed some changes. How can I help you? I want to help you. There's a misconception that if you ask someone if they are having suicidal thoughts, you will be putting suicidal thoughts in their head. That in a lot of cases, the complete opposite. Someone that's struggling mentally They have a lot of anguish and then they might have some shame or embarrassed that they're having these suicidal thoughts. So if you say to someone open and loving, are you having suicidal thoughts in a way that they feel safe? That might alleviate some of the pressure to say, yes, I am. Can you help me? Thank you, Marianne. And Mary, you're the therapist on our panel. How do we approach people in need or in crisis? Well, I would agree with a lot that Mary Ann just shared, but the thing is kind of meeting them where you're not like over top of them. Like you don't have to have power over the conversation and you give them permission to really just be in the space and in the emotions that they're in. When I can see that the energetic has shifted or changed and that we're possibly going in that way, I ask them permission. Can we have a real conversation? Because one of the things is that people will talk on the surface and end up pushing you away in regards to like what is truly going on down deep inside their entire soul. But in asking their permission, I also ask, can we walk side by side 
and like really I always refer to a lot of metaphors and in this conversation I refer to the metaphor of an onion like let's get to the core and the heart of how it is that you feel right now and I'm sure it seems very overwhelming because there's so many layers that's covering it up but allow me to to walk side by side with you in this space so that we can identify the behavior the shift that has happened in life and like what has happened to you and that you don't feel your voice is validated. And David, you have a very personal experience to share. How were you able to emerge from your lowest point? Well, I am three times lived experience. So it's something that unfortunately left my teens and even through adult years. The details honestly don't matter because quite frankly, we all have our individual paths. We all have our individual roads and they lead to a certain point. And the point being where you feel like either your presence is too difficult for others to bear or you're still being here and staying is too difficult for you to bear. I felt that it was unbearable for me when I was a teenager. And I felt the opposite where my presence was too much to bear for the people that were closest to me. The only way to come out of it is your own inner ability and humility to say, I need help because you have to reach out. The only way for the people that are around you is to recognize and speak up. I've had help from counselors. I've had help from my family. I've had help from my friends, my partner in business. I've had my life saved, not only from God above, from keeping me here, but from the people around me. And the best way that I can explain it is you're in a storm. You feel like you're in the center of a storm and you don't know when the clouds are going to break, but you have to find that lighthouse. For people like me that are survivors of what they went through in life, we put a face, we put a name on that inner battle and trying to be the lighthouse in their storm. So that way you see it and you reach for it. It took me a long time to recognize it. Honest to God, I'm still walking. The reason we're doing this walk, I correlated to walking away from the then and there to the here and now. And I will always be walking away from that point as long as God has me on this earth. And Marianne, there are just so many survivors such as yourself, and sometimes people just don't know what to say. What do you want those folks to know? When we talk to survivors like myself, I am a survivor. um, We just, you know, share our stories. We ask them about their loved ones. We ask to share their life and not the details because the person lived and it's around making sure that we are honoring the legacy of those that we lost, but also wrapping our arms around and embracing those that are survivors so that we can help them understand there is a way to hope and healing on this journey. And the journey is hard. It's very, very hard. The complex grief that we experience as survivors is There's so many layers of the onion because we have all of the stages of grief, but then we have to add the guilt that we might feel because we didn't help the person or we didn't do enough. And then we might feel anger because that person left us and the pain that we feel because they left us. And then there might be another layer of anger or guilt because we're, we feel, how can you be angry at someone that has died? So Um, AFSP, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, we have a loss and healing program where we have trained 
volunteers that are survivors that will reach out to newly bereaved families. We will send them a care package that includes resources and a book and some based on the family dynamics, um, maybe resources for children. And then we'll reach out and we'll meet the family where they are, whether that's a phone call to talk about what resources are available to them, or maybe meeting them in person at a coffee shop, or in today's world with Zoom and all of our technology on a Zoom call. And we help them kind of guide to the, do they need a therapist? We have many clinicians in the area that are trained to work with those that are survivors of suicide. We also partner with other organizations that offer support and therapy for those that are survivors, that are led by those that are survivors. So it's, you know, me too, kind of, when we tell our stories, to hear someone say to me, me too, Marianne, it helps us find our way to a path of healing and know that there is a way to hope and a way to honor our loved ones. Mary, when does having a bad day become a more serious issue to recognize in oneself or a loved one where a mental health professional such as yourself may need to get involved? So that varies based on the person and how it is that you know their everyday activity. When somebody where it just overtakes their entire sense of being, like they're unable to think of anything else for They're unable to think of anything else other than how life will be better in the absence of their living. And they may show that in a lot of different ways. So they may show that in like their behavior or their their lack thereof. And there's, there's some definite cultural differences on how you approach individuals because for some people, it can be considered taboo or that people don't have permission to like really exist with their feelings being at the capacity that they need to be approached. So it's like, again, trying to figure out how can approaching them, they're not feeling like you're, you're outing them because it, it has a very similar, you know, feeling like, the, oh, you're trying to out me. Then if, once my family finds out, or once my partner finds out, or once, you know, it's like, then they begin to exacerbate. And again, want to insulate because, coming out or sharing what they're they're experiencing they don't want the adverse thing because they don't want to inconvenience someone so approaching them and getting that permission is very very key and and words they they really matter here how do we change how we talk about suicide with our words and our actions there's a difficult way because different people get triggered or there's different stigmas to different words the word commit commit is often used even in media, when you're reporting about somebody that completed suicide, there's a different texture to that sound. For people that are survivors, they're already healing. So the point that I like to try to when I communicate with somebody from people both struggling or people trying to help someone in their circle struggling, and it's focus on the feeling. You focus on what's going on inside. You try to get them to describe what they're thinking and feeling without any sort of connotation to it. Because if you let something just be and you let them express exactly how they are, you're both giving them the ear they need and creating the safe space so that they feel like there is non-judgment on what they're thinking and feeling. 
Now, these past 18 months of the pandemic have impacted so many lives, you know, taking a toll on mental health. How much more important is it even now to have these conversations and look out for each other? Uh, We'll start with you, Mary. It's like 1 million percent times 1 million because it's so much coming at you. You know, like it's so many different things that life is is opening up and, and bringing towards people. And if your capacity to kind of resolve conflict or make a decision kind of swiftly the way life is evolving or has evolved or as it has slowed down, because that really has impacted people that it slowed down at the time that we were on lockdown and not really able to go out. But then maybe depending on their zip code or where they live in the area, it was a lot of stuff happening, you know, like social justice, like with the competing agenda. And so it's like being mindful that where a text message prior to what we just experienced in the last 18 months may have been somewhat sufficient, you know, on checking in on people, you might want to actually pick up the phone call and, and call that person and create like a space that they know that you're genuinely checking in on individuals. You can hide in a text message. It takes the emotion out of it and they can continue to wear the mask hiding behind whatever is enabling them. Everybody is capable of checking in on their loved ones, their friends, their business workers or whatever, and then guiding them to call on 1-800-273-TALK or texting somebody and doing that side by side together because the together support can mean so much because they may not have anybody else but you checking in on them. So where and how can people reach each of you? I am the area director for American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, Greater Philadelphia Chapter. Any information you need about us and the resources that we have are at AFSP.org backslash Philadelphia. David? It's D-A-V-E-H-U-B-E-R-E-S-Q. I'm an open book. I'm an open door. How about you, Mary? So you can find me on LinkedIn as Mary May, as well as my website, ButterflyLoveLLC.com. Mary, David, Marianne, thank you so much for sharing your personal stories and your insight. We really appreciate it. AFSP will host its Out of the Darkness Walk Sunday, October 3rd at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, where survivors, those who struggle, and those who support them share stories of hope and healing. Up next, we'll hear how the Philadelphia School District is helping students process grief and support their mental health. We'll be right back. KYW's Antoinette Lee here with Karen Robinson. Her brother passed away by suicide at 23 years old. This is her story on the journey out of the darkness and into healing. Billy was a very passionate young man. He was a great dancer. He was an awesome cook. He actually was in the midst of a culinary arts school at the restaurant school in Philadelphia. I still remember that experience like it was yesterday. It was December of 2013. And I remember being woken up to be told that Billy had passed away. He was 23 at the time. And at first, it's just like a shock, like, wait, what? That, that doesn't sound right. And then to hear that he died by suicide as an African-American woman, but I feel like that's not something that we typically talk about. I think we all just dealt with that constant look back, like, what did I miss? How did I 
not see this coming. What could I have done? But what came for me healing actually was talking about it. I came across the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, where I was like, wow, there's a whole organization that is literally talking about mental health and suicide, which seems to be like the thing that seems so taboo to talk about. The first step of healing for a lot of us, being able to gather with a community of people who truly understood the complexity of what we were feeling as a family. After my brother's loss, people would talk to me about the fact that I lost my brother and I decided not to be ashamed of how he died. I didn't want to be ashamed. So I would openly tell people and what I found was there are people who have experienced that same loss. Since then, my family has come such a long way. We definitely had struggles after his loss, but the hope is that we can like bring light and awareness. We can talk about it. And I think through talking, through awareness, through remembering him in a positive light, all of that helps in the healing journey. If you or someone you know is thinking of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text TALK to the crisis text line at 741-741. This is a Flashpoint special presentation. I'm listening because it's okay to not be okay. I'm Denise Nakano, and welcome back to I'm Listening. Talk has the power to save lives, a Flashpoint special. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among adolescents and young people ages 10 to 24. KYW's Justin Udo is here with more about the impact on the youngest members of our community. Justin, how can you relate to what young people may be going through when it comes to suicide? I think the big thing is just knowing that we all have very low points we might hit from time to time. The thing I really want people to take away is to remove some of the stigmas around suicide. You shouldn't look at it with shame. You should be able to talk about it. You should be able to clear the air with friends and family. And I wanted to find out what it looks like for someone who deals with kids in these really fragile situations. So I called Dr. Jamie Banks. Dr. Banks is the director of trauma-informed school practices at the school district of Philadelphia. How is suicide looked at and how is it approached when it comes to your work in the Philadelphia schools? Yeah, I mean, suicide is something that when it does occur, of course, it touches our system, right? It affects the school community and the peers that uh, have relationships with the student. And so it definitely is a part of the, the work we do. My team helps respond to those incidents. So it, it's something that we really think about you know, what needs to happen in the immediate in terms of support, but then also ongoing because, you know, grief and trauma is to process. And so we have to make sure that uh, supports are available ongoing for our students, um, staff, and make sure that uh, and assist with family connection to services and supports if, if they need that as well. And when it comes to suicide, I mean, there's a lot of schools, a lot of students, a, a lot of people that are in your network. How big of an issue is it that you all face each year? Each year, we unfortunately experience a couple. We have not seen an increase in COVID, but it's something that we do deal with a couple times a year. And when it, again, occurs, I have a team of members called Prevention Intervention Liaisons. And so they um, immediately contact the school to do an assessment of what's needed to help support that school and that family and friends in the aftermath. And in the Philadelphia schools, as, as you know, as we see, there's a large population of black and brown students and me being a, a black person myself, I just know in, in different black circles and communities when it comes to suicide, 
the word sometimes is even brought up and it's hushed to the side. What work do you all do to kind of destigmatize it in those communities? Yes, yes, that's very important. I am myself a Black female. It's beyond important. It's often hushed or not spoke about, or just mental health and well being isn't spoke about in that way. And so, what we have continued to do is help put it in the forefront and make it okay. So, an example of that is going into this school year, we've generated these messaging and branding that that's, has gone out to schools that says it's okay to feel dot, dot, dot whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, but it's okay. And start to bring up the conversation of just like you you speak about your good days, it's okay to speak about your bad days. It's okay to speak about uneasy feelings. And there's an adult in this building that is here for you. We also are uh, currently having a mental health poster contest for our students to help say, what do you want to tell your friends about it being okay to share their thoughts and feelings? That's some of the work we're doing to help destigmatize mental health in general and make it a part of just the everyday conversation. My office is the Office of Prevention and Intervention, but within the Office of Climate and Culture, a lot of our social emotional learning work that, that helps introduce just emotions and feelings and checking in on each other is happening in community meetings in schools. So we start having an environment where these things are part of the normal conversation and isn't something that feels foreign. Do you run into roadblocks with people not wanting to use the word or talk about it that way? I think in general, we've had to do a lot of education to say, even prior to a suicide occurring, that there are some adults that feel like even saying those words means that you'll make somebody think about it, right? And so we've had to do a lot of education to kind of say, no, actually, that that's not the case. It's okay to ask. It's okay to talk about. In our schools over the last couple of years, We've had one of our partners helping us with signs of suicide in our school, which is a program. I mean, in that program, there's training for staff, parents, and students that, again, number one, helps with the destigmatization, but also helps to increase the dialogue about said feelings. So when we find a case where a family or staff have trouble with it, we try to help educate and support them whether that be sharing trainings and and supports that we already have or connecting them to additional resources to help on the education side. For families, we might be connecting them to services if they're not already connected or if they're ready. They may not be ready yet. So we think about what other services that we can help um, connect them to um, until they are ready for maybe a more therapeutic service to explore just that, that whole brief process and and understanding. You talk about these programs that you have and you, at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about when it comes to just the pandemic and things, you haven't necessarily seen an increase. Are you all changing the way that you're approaching suicide, talking about suicide and and reaching out throughout the pandemic? Yeah, well, right before the pandemic, we were kind of taking a more proactive stance again with the programming that I just spoke about. But through the pandemic, what was very important to me was connection because the way in which, and not just suicide in terms of just mental health, is that when a child or someone feels connected, that gives them an outlet just to express what they're thinking or feeling. And so, of course, the concern was with COVID that without going into buildings and without passing the person that you happen to see in the hallway every day that gave you the high five, that connection piece might lead to more students feeling 
isolated or lonely or suicidal thoughts maybe and not sharing them. And so what we did with not only our counselors and our social workers, as well as teaching staff is really encouraging the connection and how to connect in this new way that everyone was unfamiliar with, right? And so our counselors were using such creative ways to connect with students and families. And actually, um, everything from, you know, reaching out to the students, to texting, to using social media, but also then reaching out to their parents to say, hey, if you want to fill out this survey about if you're concerned, because maybe your child isn't saying anything, but you are concerned, so I can do another check-in. So really just pushing and encouraging and supporting our staff to, to connect as much as possible so that you know students felt like they had someone there who they could talk to or connect with about anything that was going on. Additionally, we also launched the Philly Hope Line with the help of Center uh, for Grieving Children. And that was another avenue for our students as well as parents to get the help they need that actually may be beneficial uh, during COVID and is continuing now that we are still in COVID, but at least re-engaging in person. Is there anything else you think um, when it comes to this topic, this subject and what you all are dealing with and the diversity and the amount of people that you're dealing with, you think we should know as you continue this work? I think it's the importance of connection, the importance of not only our teachers and counselors connection with students, but who the students are connected to outside of school. And through those relationships, that's how we help our kids gain uh, support systems, whether it be activities or friend, friendship circles or, or things of that nature. I just think of the importance of those as it helps create a, a support network for our students when they are having bad days or, or feelings that they don't necessarily know what to do with. That support network is there. There's someone in that network that's there to, to hear them and help them get help. So I continue to stress that with my staff, as well as in the trainings and supports for our, our teachers and school leaders. That was Justin Udo with Dr. Jamie Banks, Director of Trauma-Informed School Practices. Coming up, we turn our attention to suicide prevention in the LGBTQ community. But first, this. Shailene Kilroy has been honest about her own mental health challenges for local and national platforms, including an op-ed for the Philadelphia Inquirer earlier this year. I've gone through therapy and then I've had a period of time where I was suicidal. It comes in waves and, you know, some days you are better and some days you aren't. It's a very, very flux experience. And so this is something that I deal with on a daily basis. Shailene says she grew up in a household where talking about mental health in the open was normal. That freedom and openness has helped save her own life and empowered others. I don't think I'd be as strong as I am if I wasn't able to feel comfortable talking about these things. People don't have the space to feel comfortable and voice what they're feeling because of the way they were raised or the way society has told them how they should be. And that way they're not getting the help they need and they're not their full self. The Temple grad and freelance journalist started a blog called The Only Sound. It explores the intersections of music and mental health. There are these songs on these playlists that elicit emotions out of me and I hope elicit emotions out of other people. And there are playlists with 
with artists who have been vocal about their mental health and speak to things that haven't been spoken to before. Through her writing, Shaylin hopes to break down the stigma surrounding mental health and hopefully influence more people to heal through art and creative expression. Being able to create that space has been not only just like a joy for me, other people have reached out to me. You can turn any feeling into art. That's the beauty behind feelings. Whether they're good or bad, you can create art out of them and they can help you in, in your life and process your emotions. You can check out her blog at theonlysound.com. If you or someone you know is thinking of suicide, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text TALK to the crisis text line at 741-741. Listening to a Flashpoint special presentation. I'm listening because talk has the power to save lives. Welcome back to I'm Listening, a Flashpoint special. I'm Denise Nakano. We're carrying on the conversation with KYW's Shara Day Howard, focusing on suicide prevention in the LGBTQ community. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people, but LGBTQ youth are four times more likely to attempt suicide than their peers. So, Shara Day, mental health in the LGBTQ community, this is personal for you. It is. It's very personal. It's been one of those lifelong journeys that started very early and has uh, really changed the course of my life in many ways. What do you hope people come away with? So I'm hoping that now that people will have the information and hear these personal stories, it'll inspire them to do something, to be better, to to choose more wisely when it comes to the conversations they have and the opportunities they have to give. In the 2020 National Survey on LGBTQ Youth Mental Health by The Trevor Project, researchers paint a picture of pervasive mental distress, with a majority reporting symptoms consistent with generalized anxiety and major depressive disorders. But in Philadelphia, this is where the Attic Youth Center steps in. Shawnee Skivens, Interim Executive Director, says this is all too common. So because of the fact that LGBTQ young people are facing more obstacles than their heterosexual peers, suicidal ideation and other mental health issues do become a greater risk factor. They don't often have the support of their families, sometimes of the other adults in their life or their peers. So it leads to isolation, which can, of course, lead to mental health issues or suicidal ideation. And I've shared this a few times in previous shows that I was also an addict kid, you know, and along with many of my peers, we lost friends to HIV, to the streets, to drug abuse, and definitely suicide. The attic was a safe haven, but many of the adults outside of the attic were clueless. They had no idea how to recognize how our expressions of sadness surfaced or fear. And because you say mental distress shows up in youth differently, adults really have to pay attention to specific signs. Mm -hmm. That's 100% true. So sometimes it shows up as behavioral issues. Sometimes it can be a child who loses interest in activities that they previously loved, um, isolating themselves, having difficulty in school. And if someone does recognize some of those symptoms, what do you suggest they do? I think the first thing is to talk to that young person to let them know that you are a supportive adult in their life, uh, that you accept and affirm who they are and that you're someone that they can talk to. If that young person does trust you and confides in you and lets you know that maybe they're needing more support, you can get them connected to an LGBTQ affirming provider like the addict. And when it comes to youth of color, the statistics are even more stark. They're even more 
more dire. Most LGBTQ young people will tell you they want to come to a place where they can see themselves mirrored in the people around them. And that means the providers as well as the other young people in the space. They, they want to feel that they fit in, that they are a part of a community. And so the attic is a place where the young people create this space. It reflects who they are. Their artwork is in the walls. Their music is playing in the building. And the providers, many of us are also part of the community. And so this isn't just work to us. This is a calling. This is uh, a personal investment for many of us. And the young people feel that difference in the services they receive. And when speaking of intersectionality and layers of loss, the LGBTQ community of color still have to deal with high numbers of HIV cases. This hasn't gone away. This doesn't exclude youth either. These numbers are still high and the loss must be dealt with. So true. So true. I think about the way that there's been so much stigma about HIV so that it's not just the loss that the young person is contending with, but also this sense of stigma that came with it for the person that they may have lost. And how do they process that with an adult who may or may not be understanding or knowledgeable about it? And when it comes to mental health, it's invisible. People may not see it. And again, there is that stigma of if I tell someone that I've been feeling down, that I feel like I, I don't want to go on, are they going to judge me? Are they going to lock me up? And it's so important that young people know that there are resources that can provide them with the support to work through what they're going through, that they don't have to deal with it alone, and that there are people who are understanding. And there's so much stigma already in the black and brown communities regarding mental health and suicide. A lot of these things are just overlooked, and there is a domino effect. Well, anytime you talk about intersecting identities, you're adding in different levels of marginalization and different uh, cultural expectations and reactions. So when I think about LGBTQ youth of color, they may not feel safe enough to come out and they certainly may not feel that they can tell someone that they need to speak with someone about their mental health. I know that for many adults of color, the church is where they turn for support and that's fine. But for an LGBTQ young person, where they may or may not be getting messages in the church that who they are fundamentally is not okay, is that then a place that they feel safe turning to talk about their mental health? So you mentioned the domino effect. I think all of those things sort of compile on one another and can leave that young person feeling very isolated uh, and very alone with a very heavy burden. So the addict steps in. Um, we have our counseling department, which is LGBTQ affirming, family focused, whenever it's appropriate and safe, we want to involve the family because when young people have the support of their family, they have better outcomes. And we offer individual counseling, family counseling, uh, couples counseling. We just want to make sure that our young people are getting exactly what they need. And what do you say to that young person right now who's out there who maybe is suffering and needs a little guidance? I want them to know that the attic is a place they can come. They don't need to have parental permission to come here, that our services are confidential, um, and we do not, as a practice, out them. Uh, to anyone and that our services are completely free. And heading the counseling department at the attic, Priscilla Jesse, who says the pandemic has only complicated matters. I think right now what I'm seeing because of the pandemic, you got to think about all the problems that youth are currently having associated with like Zoom fatigue, especially going to classes and stuff like that. Um, being home with parents who aren't accepting of them, dealing with maybe partners that could possibly have trauma and then they're inducing trauma in one another. So probably domestic violence issues, you know, work-related issues. I'm seeing a lot of poor coping skills. Youth who probably had trauma in the past that's not able to kind of find their strength or like resilience in them in order for them to pull themselves out of their depression. Sometimes the depression doesn't always look like 
like a sadness. It looks like frustration, anger, and then it does look like sadness, loss of hope, um, hopelessness, negative thoughts associated, and then not having family support or like a strong family unit to kind of like rely on to help them overcome some of the obstacles that they've been going through. So what do these kids need most? I mean, for me, is love and affection. That's number one. I always tend to try to understand where they're coming from. I try to put myself in their shoes and I kind of use my own lived experiences to tell them how I've been through some of these situations possibly and this is how I've come out and overcome it. So my aim is always to understand like, yes, we come from pain, we come from suffering. You know, how do you understand your soul? How do you understand your existence? You know, how do you build from that to try to get to your survival mode in order for you to tell your own story? And as an LGBTQ person of color, how important is it that these kids can look at you and see someone who looks like them who's had a bit of their lived experience to some degree does that help you relate to them um i think it's very helpful because they have to understand like you know we've, we live in an oppressed society and living in an oppressed society we have strikes against us in order for us to kind of understand where those strikes come from you have to understand your trauma and you got to understand how it impacts you as a youth and how you're going to navigate throughout the system growing up so if you have like you know mentors such as myself as a person of color or as someone that looks like you that had these experiences you can basically kind of like work through them you can get advice you can get support you know here at the attic youth center we are a team we are a family and that's pretty much what we promote so they get connected to community resources we have special groups like support groups especially like healthy relationships groups groups where you can explore your gender where you can educate yourself about self-care you know learn the history of the lgbtq organization overall in general and different stories of how politicians and people within our community have like rose from the bottom to the top and how we're still evolving indeed still involving thank you so much for joining me today Coming up, we'll talk about mental health and suicide prevention in communities of color. Suicidal thoughts, plans, and attempts are rising among black and African-American young adults. In 2019, suicide was the second leading cause of death for blacks or African-Americans ages 15 to 24, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. How we can break mental health barriers after this. Shailene Kilroy has been honest about her own mental health challenges for local and national platforms, including an op-ed for the Philadelphia Inquirer earlier this year. I've gone through therapy and then I've had a period of time where I was suicidal. It comes in waves and, you know, some days you are better and some days you aren't. It's a very, very flux experience. And so this is something that I deal with on a daily basis. Shailene says she grew up in a household where talking about mental health in the open was normal. That freedom and openness has helped save her own life and empowered others. I don't think I'd be as strong as I am if I wasn't able to feel comfortable talking about these things. People don't have the space to feel comfortable and voice what they're feeling because of the way they were raised or the way society has told them how they should be. And that way they're not getting the help they need and they're not their full selves. The Temple grad and freelance journalist started a blog called The Only Sound. It explores the intersections of music and mental health. There are these songs on these playlists that elicit emotions out of me and I hope elicit emotions out of other people. And there are playlists with 
with artists who have been vocal about their mental health and speak to things that haven't been spoken to before. Through her writing, Shaylin hopes to break down the stigma surrounding mental health and hopefully influence more people to heal through art and creative expression. Being able to create that space has been not only just like a joy for me, other people have reached out to me. You can turn any feeling into art. That's the beauty behind feelings. Whether they're good or bad, you can create art out of them and they can help you in, in your life and process your emotions. You can check out her blog at theonlysound.com. If you or someone you know is thinking of suicide, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text TALK to the crisis text line at 741-741. is a Flashpoint special presentation from KYW News Radio. I'm listening. Welcome back to Odyssey's I'm Listening, a Flashpoint special. I'm Denise Nakano. Overall, suicide rates in the U.S. dropped in 2019 and 2020. National and local studies attribute that trend to a drop among white Americans. But suicide deaths continue to climb in communities of color for Black, Hispanic, and Asian Americans. Let's bring in my friend and colleague, KYW Afternoon anchor, Jay Scott Smith. So, Jay, suicide prevention in communities of color really hits home for you. Well, yeah. I mean, on a multitude of levels, I've been there where everything else kind of got to the point in my life where it's just like, do I really need to do this? And the reason it didn't happen for me was just the thought of my mother finding me is what did it to kind of keep me, keep me off of that particular point. We need to stop treating mental illness as if it's a weakness. We need to treat this, not just suicide. We need to treat what leads people to that place with more seriousness. And now we're joined by Marvin Tolliver. He has a master's in social work and currently holds an LCSW in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He has a personal connection to those living with HIV and AIDS and working with the LGBTQ community. And he also is the co-founder of Melanated Social Work, where he and three other male social workers of color challenge, encourage, support, and promote, as well as spread love to individuals from all walks of life who are dealing with all sorts of mental health issues. Marvin, good to have you on with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Marvin, I guess the first thing I'd love to just bring up, what first drew your interest to wanting to be a therapist and help guide people through issues with their mental health? So I always have two answers to this question. So one is kind of the, the flowery answer of like, yeah, I want to help people and I see issues in the community and I want to help the world and all of that, which is true. I think the more personal answer is that I wish that I had someone to speak to when I was, you know, in middle school, high school, when I was a younger boy to really help me through different issues with identity, with um, safety, with figuring out who I am. And so, you know, it's an honor that I get to do that with uh, individuals, primarily black and brown men uh, today. You bring that up and I'm looking at some of the uh, statistics when it comes to black people, particularly black men, when it comes to issues of suicide and suicidal thoughts. The, the most recent numbers for 2019, this is from the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, is that the black population makes up just a little more than 7.4 
out of every 100,000 suicide attempts. Now, the national rate overall is 13.2. Among black populations, suicide rates peak during adolescence and young adulthood, then decline, which is different from the typical patterns that we see. What is it about, I guess, our mental health, which makes it so difficult as black men to really be upfront and real about what we're going through? Yeah, I think it goes back to our definitions and our ideas of what masculinity uh, is and what it means. I actually have a group for black men happening right now, and we talked about emotions, right? And how as black men, we're not really given the space to show our emotions. Anger is typically the most uh, acceptable emotion, but anything around sadness, around tears, around anything like that, we're typically told to suppress those things. Right. And so we automatically are just told, stop crying, uh, especially boys. We, we try to parentify boys so young, which actually is doing a lot more harm. And so we're not given the space to really open up about how we're feeling a lot of the time. I mean, I grew up playing a lot of sports. And one of the main things I would hear from coaches is you got to toughen up. You're hurt. You can't let them see you showing that kind of emotion because it's a sign of weakness. In your experience, Do you see a difference, say, with the slightly older generation of black men, the brothers who are in there, maybe their 40s or late 40s into their 50s, as opposed to the young guys who are in like their mid-20s to early 40s? I've seen it with older guys. Um, I also have seen it with younger guys, too. I, I really think it depends on how folks are raised and what their idea of masculinity is, right? Because I just had a session today, and he's uh, in his uh, late 30s, early 40s, and he said, my dad taught me how to cry, like taught me to cry. My dad and my grandfather both cried. We're both emotional, right? But you hear other people that's like, no, we never talked about anything at home. You know, every time I cried, you know, I was met with, what you got to cry about. You know what I mean? <laughs> just, I'll just, give you something to cry about. Is, well, that's another thing too. Absolutely. And so I don't know if it's, there's a specific age group or age range. Um, I know that with more voices like mine and with, with other black men out there encouraging uh, boys and men to be emotional, to open up, to really express how you feel, it's starting to change with the younger generations. Um, but I think older generations are also evolving a bit more too. And I know one thing that has also evolved, especially in black community over the last more so 15 years, mm-hmm. is the acceptance of the LGBTQ community. One of the first real encounters of a suicide that hit me close was a friend of mine that I was a baseball teammate, grew up together. He mm-hmm. comes out to me just before we start ninth grade that he's gay. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was an issue because my thing is I'm 14 years old. I was like, so this means you're not going to be able to play baseball with us anymore. <laughs> That's all I thought. Yeah. But he's in a very religious household Mm. and his parents were not cool with it. Mm -hmm. And he took his own life three weeks after he came out. Mm. And a a large number of these, especially teens more so, were taking their lives are LGBTQ. Yeah. How much of a change have you seen over the last few years in terms of more of the, especially the younger, the, the younger black teens who are LGBTQ coming out and kind of running into that resistance and even an older people who have been repressing it for years and haven't said much about it. And now they get to their thirties or forties and they're finally looking to try to be who they are, but they're kind of in the same boat. My friend was 28 years ago where he's afraid of letting himself be himself. Yeah. Um, Well, first I just want to add some new language instead of coming out, we're starting to say that this person allowed us in. I mean, and it's a new concept and it's not all like kind of used all the time, but I do want to start to spread that, right? Because it is more of a personal journey for folks um, and they are choosing to allow folks into your life and into their life. Absolutely. To your point, I think 
it is becoming more acceptable. I think that there is absolutely still resistance though. We look at celebrities like Little Nas X right now and how much heat he's getting for just existing. We can't talk about anti-queerness without talking about toxic masculinity, especially in the Black community. And toxic oh, yeah. masculinity is so restrictive. And that's what's the issue with it, is that we can't exist outside of this box that masculinity is supposed to be. When individuals identify as anything other than heterosexual, red flags are raised because we have such a restrictive idea of what masculinity looks like. We don't really allow for anything else. I identify as a queer bisexual black man. And so, you know, for a long, long time, what you were talking about, that was me, you know, repressing my emotions, repressing my feelings, repressing my true self, because all of the images from home, from my community to hip hop, to church told me that I was wrong. Right. And so it took a lot of time to say, oh, there's actually nothing wrong with me. And I think we have to continue uh, to encourage that we can show up in whatever way we choose to. If you have a brother in front of you right now, mm -hmm. what's something that you would recommend to him who's dealing with it and saying, this is a lot of pain and I don't know if I can keep pushing through this. The first thing I would do is validate that is really say, you know what, you are going through a lot. And I want to acknowledge that like life is hard. Also, we want to talk about future. Look at what you have going on and look at what you have to look forward to. And I think that as people, we really have to try and give folks hope that think that nothing is going to get better. Right. And so I obviously would recommend therapy. Therapy is incredibly helpful. There are so many good resources, uh, especially for clinicians of color as well. I also encourage folks to get the body involved, right, to go outside to lean into your community, because when we are around other people, it brings out a different energy and a different spirit in us. What are some of the resources out there for black men who are seeking? And I, and please understand black women, if you're hearing this, we know that there's a different dynamic that black women go through, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I'm not a black woman. I can't speak for a black woman's experience. Yeah. And it's completely different because if, if we get ourselves right, we're better to black women and better to society as well. Sure. So that's sure. another reason I feel this is really important. What resources are out there for black men? Yeah. So I think uh, as far as therapy, uh, there's psychologytoday.com, which is a, is a pretty big one. You can filter it out by racial issues, and then you have more folks of color that show up. Um, there's cliniciansofcolor.org. So all of those clinicians are clinicians of color, obviously. You can filter by city and state. Um, there's InnoPsych. I-N-N-O-P-S-Y-C-H.com, um, which is another uh, resource that has uh, clinicians of color. There is also uh, me. So I actually host <laughs> a group, uh, a 10-week group for Black men. This cycle has just started. The next one will probably be in the spring of 2022. And so that is another resource. There are other resources like groups or just following folks that that talk about mental health. I think mental health is becoming so uh, much more popular right now, especially in, in the Black community. I think that there, as far as Black therapists, as, as far as Black folks seeking therapy, there's kind of been a, a boom that's happening, right? And so there's so many resources and I think folks just really need to take advantage of them. There's definitely a taboo that's been lifted about therapy. Like it's a lot, it, it, even the thoughts of even five or six years ago, if someone said you should seek help and the reaction that someone would have when you would say that, as opposed to now where it's, a, have you thought of seeking therapy? Well, actually I had, and, it, and it's changed the whole dynamic of this thing. Yeah. How can people 
follow you, find out more about what you're doing and the the great work that you're doing out here to help brothers out here who we all need to get right in one way or another. We're trying to get better. Um, so folks can follow me on Instagram at M as in Marvin Tolliver, T-O-L-I-V-E-R underscore L-C-S-W. You can look at my collective along with three other male social workers of color at Melanated Social Work on Instagram. And then also visit us at www.radicaltherapycenter.com. Marvin Tolliver, thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of Flashpoint. Thank you. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is presented by Patriot Home Care. KYW's Antoinette Lee here, and I would first like to thank all of those who opened up and shared their stories with us for this special and life-saving show. Each and every one of you are truly change makers. Thank you for trusting us with your stories, and thank you to everyone listening. I want to wrap us up by highlighting this week's change maker, who is bringing a line of hope to those in need, Philadelphia's poet laureate, Trapita B. Mason. Trapita, thank you so much for joining us on Flashpoint this week. Thank you for having me. Um, It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So tell me a little bit about yourself and the work that you're doing in Philly right now. I know that you wear a lot of hats and it's been really hard to get in touch with you. Yeah, so I'm a proud Philadelphia resident. I am in Germantown, grew up in North Philadelphia and originally from Liberia. I am the city's uh, poet laureate. And what I'm doing is everything and anything to help promote poetry, help provide spaces and platforms for voices to be amplified. I also am a licensed clinical social worker, and I work in the community mental health field. I'm responsible for a lot of community-based programs and residential outpatient, you know, that help uh, support individuals uh, seek services for mental health um, concerns. I love that um, because not only do you have this artistic perspective, right, but you also have the professional and credentialed perspective as well. Yes, yes, I I do. Um, And I've managed to try to merge the two, you know, to be able to use the Poet Laureate platform and my specific project, uh, the Healing Verse Poetry Line, to um, support and services that may help others. And so for those who don't know, can you tell us what the Healing Verse Poetry Line is? Yeah, so the Healing Verse Poetry Line um, is my Hallmark Poet Laureate project. And there are several components to it. But the main component is this poetry line. It started in January of 2021, right in the new year, in the middle of our, you know, this pandemic where we are all experiencing globally. And what this poetry line is, is 90 seconds of respite. Every week we feature a new poet. And the poet has a poem that's recorded on the phone line that is really focused. It's all different themes and topics that the writers, you know, write about. But really, it is an effort to be affirming, to be supportive, and to help those who are really trying to get to a sense of mental well-being. The poetry line also offers resources. So if you click on one of the numbers, you'll hear some resources for suicide prevention, resources for mental health services in our city, domestic you know, partnership violence resources, as well as shelters. So there's a couple of lines there that individuals can call. But you know, most people are calling in to hear a poem that delights them, surprises them, affirms them, or just help them kind of maintain a, a nice state of mind. 
Um, I'm sure, as you know, there's a strain on resources right now when it comes to mental health. So yeah. this is this seems like a nice way to sort of bridge that gap, bridge some of those holes. If someone needs to call, they can just pick up the phone, right? Yes, yes. That's the beautiful thing about it. It's phone-based. You know, I mean, since we've all been dealing with the pandemic and people are experiencing so many challenges and struggles, and we're on Zooms and Teams and all these different meetings, what I really wanted to do was make it really accessible. That's my goal as an artist. I'm a teaching artist also. I believe in deep, deep community connections and engagement. So the phone, just barrier, it just releases and removes that barrier. You can pick up a phone, you can pick up a friend's phone, you know, and just dial the number and you, you just hear a little greeting message from me. You press one, you hear the poem. You can do it over and over again, 24 hours a day. And each week there is a new poet. I was the first poet and I'll be the last poet on the line. But in between that, we've had amazing poets from all over our great city, all different walks of life sharing their poems. So it's been amazing. And what inspired this idea for you? I've always wanted to do this idea, but it was going to be very grassroots. I was still going to do the line, but I was going to go out into the neighborhoods, barbershops, community centers, um, all the places that I've worked before. And then with the pandemic, um, I couldn't go into these places. I was still doing work in schools and things, but only on the virtual. And I recognized that there are a lot of people that won't be able to just, you know, uh, have access to the internet and get on here and do a workshop, you know, especially with everything else going on. How do you lower access to be able to give important information, but also to be able to share art with other people? You know, art sometimes is seen as such a highbrow thing and people can't access it. And I wanted people to do that. You know, a lot of uh, folks in the community, they're artists themselves. They're writing, they're painting, they're sharing, they're rapping, they're doing all these things. You know, I wanted to celebrate that as well. A lot of the poets are coming right out of the communities. A beautiful part of the poetry line also is that we feature most of the youth poet laureates that the city has had in the last couple of years. And we even have the newest youth poet laureate, Andrea Rhodes. So what can callers expect when they call this hotline? The number is one 763 6792 And what they can expect when they call, they'll first hear my voice welcoming them to the hotline and a little message about the project. They will press one to hear today's poem. So if someone calls this week, they'll be hearing from Felicia Webster, who's a wonderful poet who wrote this piece called Ah. And we hear her voice is to hear like this piece. <laughs> and then if they press three, they'll hear a list of resources, you know, resources about seeking mental health services, suicide prevention, shelter, domestic violence. And then also we're going to have um, a workshop before the project is over. So there's a line on there. We haven't put the information on there that will be able to give information about a, a virtual workshop um, that we'll be hosting kind of to, to end, you know, the project. The good news is that the project may continue beyond my tenure, um, and we're really excited about that possibility. Awesome. And how can people stay connected? And if maybe even if they're a poet who wants to see if they can get on the hotline, how can they learn more? How can people reach you? Yeah, so I have on my website, there's contact information, and it's just trapetamason, T-R-A-P-E-T-A-M-A-Y-S-O-N.com. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I just want to say thank you for this opportunity to share about the project and just to kind of keep poetry alive, keep arts alive, um, just, you know, support writers, poets, artists. We're all here trying to help contribute to our, our community's mental wellness through the work that we do. And thank you so much, Antonia. I really appreciated this. Thank you, Trapita. That's it for this Flashpoint special, I'm Listening, Talk Has the Power to Save Lives, Odyssey's commitment to shed light on the darkness of suicide and bring awareness surrounding mental health. If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text TALK to the crisis text line at 741-741. I'll leave you with a quote from Joyce Meyer, place your hand over your heart. Feel that? That's called purpose. You're alive for a reason. Don't forget it. For our entire Flashpoint team, including producer Ariane Fulcher, I'm your host, Denise Nakano. Listen, be present, and don't be afraid to ask questions and start the conversation. Remember, you are not alone. <laughs>